0: I invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Again, that is the book of Mark, chapter 6. In uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, um, the Apostle Paul really emphasizes the believer's position in Christ. As a matter of fact, he begins that letter with with a wonderful description of our position in Christ. He reminds us that we are blessed in Christ, that we are chosen in Christ, we are predestined in Christ, we are redeemed in Christ, we are sealed in Christ. I think in the first 13, 14 verses, he uses that little phrase, uh, in Christ, eight or nine times. He must think we're slow of learning or something, Uh, but he is trying to convey to us Uh, Firstly, that our salvation as Christians rests entirely on Christ from beginning to end. He is trying to emphasize, impress upon us that we as Christians find our identity uh, in Christ and in Christ alone. Uh, That little phrase, Christ alone, became very popular at the time of the Reformation, Uh, the Reformers. Uh, summed up their teaching according to five solas. The word sola means alone. And the fourth of those five solas was Christ alone. We are saved by Christ alone because we are saved in Christ alone. That means that for us as Christians, there is nothing more soul-satisfying than the contemplation of Christ and our position in Him. There is nothing more soul-satisfying than our contemplation of Christ and our interest in Him. John Owen, and I included this quote in the sermon notes because it is beautiful. Uh, John Owen wrote centuries ago, Christ is precious, the sun, the rock, the life, the bread of our souls. He is everything that is good. Useful, amiable, desirable, now and throughout eternity. All that I am and all that I will ever be is found in Christ. All that I have and all that I will ever have is found in Christ. Here's the thing, Christian. Your chief business every day must be to remind yourself of who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day we must fix our minds on things above. Every day we need to preach to ourselves. Every day we need to meditate upon this soul-satisfying wonder that we, by God's Spirit, are in Christ. And what we're going to do this day is precisely that. We're going to contemplate this soul-satisfying truth of what it means to be in Christ Saved by Christ alone. And we're going to do so on the basis of some verses in Mark chapter 6. And I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in, the, in verse 32. And I'm going to go as far as verse 52. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them And when they'd found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And so our chief goal, our chief business this morning, very simple, very straightforward. We want to contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in this text, these two incidents. And we want to do so because there is, as Christians, there is nothing more soul-satisfying than our contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ and of our position in him. And so we're going to approach these verses from that angle, and I'm going to do so by by latching on to that phrase, Christ alone, and celebrate with you four great truths. The first being this, Christ alone saves us. Very simple. Christ alone saves us. We see it in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so the Lord Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. They're out on the sea, not far from shore, because the people can actually see him. They can see the boat. And they can see where the boat is heading, and so they follow on foot. And they they know where he is going. They can guess his destination. They arrive there before him. A crowd gathers The boat arrives at its destination. The Lord Jesus disembarks. He sees the multitude, the crowd, the people gathered again. And he makes this comment. He is overcome with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That commentary, they were like sheep without a shepherd, declares two truths. The first is this. Uh, They need what? A shepherd. These people are shepherdless. These people are leaderless. These people have no one to watch over them. These people have no one to guide them according to God's word. These people have no one who, who care for them. They are governed on the one hand by the Herodians and on the other hand by the Pharisees. Your Pharisees are your social and political conservatives Your Herodians are your liberal, uh, socially and politically speaking. Neither has any interest in the people. Neither leads the people according to God's word. And so the Lord Jesus looks upon these people and he acknowledges that what they need is a shepherd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. The second truth he is conveying in that comment is this, that he is the shepherd they need. He is the shepherd they need. The phrase, and these little phrases, they, we, we, they, this often escapes our notice. So many of the little phrases in the, in the Gospels in particular, they have what? An Old Testament context. The Old Testament context for that little phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd, is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 27. In the book of Numbers, chapter 27, we read about Moses, the shepherd of Israel. And God calls Moses, He commands Moses to go up on the mountain so that he can look over the promised land and see what awaits the children of Israel. And then God reminds Moses that he is not going to enter the promised land, but that in actual fact his death is approaching. And Moses knows his days are numbered and so he prays. And he asks God to do what? He asks God to to raise up a new leader someone who will follow in the footsteps of Moses, someone who will direct and lead and shepherd the people in their coming in and their going out, lest, he says, lest they become like sheep without a shepherd. God answers that prayer request. There is an immediate fulfillment. Who does he raise up? Joshua. There is an ultimate fulfillment of that request. It is Jesus. Remember, Joshua is the English transliteration of a Hebrew name. Jesus is an English transliteration of a Greek name. That Hebrew and Greek name are the same name. Jesus is Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. The Lord Jesus is the shepherd, God's shepherd. The Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. The Lord Jesus is the great shepherd. The Lord Jesus is the new Moses. The Lord Jesus is the final, full fulfillment of that heartfelt prayer request that Moses utters before God. Raise up someone, lest these people become like sheep without a shepherd. Lest they become directionless. Lest they have no protection. We all know what sheep are like. If they're capable of anything, it is getting lost. They can't care for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't survive by themselves. They need a shepherd. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the new Moses. Do not not let the parallels escape your notice, friend. Uh, Moses led the people through what? The wilderness. Where is the Lord Jesus right now with these people? In a desolate place. The wilderness. Moses taught the people the Mosaic covenant, the law. What is the Lord Jesus doing right now at the end of verse 34? He teaches these people many things. Moses feeds the people with the manna, physical bread. The Lord Jesus, what is he about to do for these people? Feed them with spiritual, well, physical bread, pointing to spiritual bread. You see, he is the new Moses, he is the shepherd. And he is the one who has come to deliver his people. As Moses in the Old Testament led God's people out of bondage, physical bondage in Egypt, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, has come to lead God's people not out of physical bondage, not not free of the clutches of political tyranny or, or social anarchy, or or economic uncertainty, he has come to lead his people out of bondage to sin. How does he do that? He himself tells us he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He alone can save us. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the essence of good news. That is the essence of great news. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the new Moses, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep to secure their deliverance. Paul sums it up wonderfully. It's just one of those statements in 2 Corinthians 5.21, just wonderfully when he tells us, and try to get your mind around this, especially if you're unfamiliar with this concept, he tells us that God made him. So that's Christ. God made him who knew no sin. As Christ. Perfect, spotless. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. So that we over here might become the righteousness of God. That is known as the great exchange. That is at the heart of the gospel. That God has taken my sin and he has transferred that sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. And the great shepherd has laid down his life. On my behalf. And God has judged him. And so God has transferred my sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and God has judged the Lord Jesus Christ. And equally important, equally sweet, equally true. God has now transferred the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to me. Whereby I have become in Christ the righteousness of God. So my sin transferred to Christ. God judges Christ. Christ's righteousness transferred to me. And God justifies me. That is what it means to be in Christ. That is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to be delivered. A great transaction. And it rests entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end. The gospel is not About what I do. The gospel is all about. What the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And I am simply commanded. To repent and to believe. I am preaching to the choir. To a great extent. But I am not preaching to the choir. Exclusively this morning. There are some here. For whom that gospel. And that good news. Is not yet glorious news. Friend understand again. The gospel is all about Christ. It is all about what Christ has done. Again, hear the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. That is the beginning of our hope and that is the end of our hope. And God extends this wonderful invitation to all who believe to acknowledge that this gospel, it is his power for salvation. To all who believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone saves us. The second truth emerging from these verses is as follows. Christ alone satisfies us. Look at verse 42. And they all ate and were. Satisfied, Ate what? Of the five loaves and the two fish. Now keep the parallel in view. Mark is very intentional here. He doesn't want us to miss it. That just as Christ is the new Moses, the new Moses who delivers God's people out of bondage, not physical bondage under political tyranny in a land like Egypt, No, he delivers his people out of spiritual bondage, bondage to the penalty and power of their sin, and he does so by laying down his life. But the parallel continues. You see, Moses, having led God's people out of Egypt, he leads them through the wilderness, and there he provides for their physical sustenance. How? The manna that falls from heaven. And now we have the new Moses... Providing for these people's physical sustenance, how? By miraculously multiplying these five loaves and two fish to feed this multitude to the point where they are satisfied. Mark doesn't state it explicitly. But John, in the parallel account, John 6, does. And he records this wonderful statement from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, his provision and his multiplication of these five loaves and two fish, fulfilling this role as the new Moses feeding physically these people, points to a far greater reality. Their physical hunger points to a far greater hunger. It is a spiritual hunger. And the manna that fell in the wilderness through which God sustained his people. And this bread and these fish that now satisfy these people. They point to Christ himself who is the fulfillment. Who is the bread. Who comes down from heaven. Whereby whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hungering. Thirsting. They are expressions of what? Longing. Expressions of a yearning. Uh, Do you long for forgiveness, friend? That's a good question. So many questions are a waste of time. That's a good question. Do you long for forgiveness? Are you wrestling with that same habitual sin that has plagued you for years, and you just can't believe it? Have you blown it? I mean, have you done something now and you've blown it big time? Your world is about to unravel. Are you wrestling with anger and malice and envy and pride and bitterness and resentment? Do you long for forgiveness? Hear the words of the Lord Jesus I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He alone can satisfy our longing for forgiveness. We sing it. Oh, I wish we believed half of what we sung here at Grace Community Church. I shouldn't use the first person plural. I'll use the first person singular. I wish I believed half of what we sang here at Grace Community Church. Or at least practiced it. Beautiful stanza from one of our well-known hymns. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you believe that? Do you live daily in Christ? And do you understand that He alone can satisfy our longing for forgiveness? Are you longing for love? We're all longing for love, we all want to be loved. Our problem is that we love others in the expectation that we will be loved in return. Do you know what that makes our love? It ultimately makes our love self-serving, at least to some degree. We need love. We need love like we need food and we need water. We need it. We want it. And so all of our love, when we when we pour out love, our expectation is love in return, and, and we need it. And, and, and at times what happens to our concept of love, because, because we believe we must love, to love in return our understanding of love becomes performance-based. and We need to understand God's love is not like our love. God is love, Father, Son, and Spirit. God loves himself, and God is perfectly happy and satisfied in that mutual delight. Do you know what that means? God does not need to love you. He gains nothing by it, and he does not need to love me. And God does not need us to love Him. He gains nothing by it. He is perfect and eternally happy in Himself, the Father, Son, and Spirit living in mutual delight. Here's the wonder of wonders. God has chosen to love us. Thereby making His love, what? Merciful, undeserved. And friend, I want you to understand this. Here is your greatest need. Do you know what one of your greatest needs? One of your greatest needs is in life. It is for someone to love you, who doesn't need you. It is for someone who loves you, who does not expect anything in return. It is for someone to love you, a love which is not performance-based, but a love which is eternal. From before the foundation of the world. A love which is poured out at Calvary's cross. Where the Lord Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And a love that is poured out in our hearts. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It is an unchanging love in Christ. Understand that Christian. There are no ebbs and flows to the love of God. There are no ups and downs to the love of God. God's love is ever constant. God's love is never changing. and God's love for us resides in his love for his beloved. Do you hunger? Do you thirst? Do you long for love? Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you long for peace? Peace and quiet. Boy, that would be nice tranquility. Uh, I I long for someone um, upon whom I can just just cast everything. All of my problems, all of my anxieties, all of my worries, all of my perplexities, all of my uncertainties. Here's, Here's what I want. Here's what I long for. I long to be able to just turn all of that over to someone who is infinitely wise. Infinitely wise. Someone who is infinitely powerful. Let's say someone who could maybe calm a storm, raise someone from the dead. I wish I could just turn all of that over to someone who is infinitely good and infinitely compassionate. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never Thirst In Christ we find all three. We find one whose wisdom defies human understanding. We find one whose power and authority extends to all things. And we find one who abounds in goodness and loving kindness. Let me give you one more question. Are you longing for hope? Do you hunger and thirst for hope? This world is Hopeless. I can't believe some of the things I read in the headlines this past week. People being shot in New York and Chicago, outside of Walmart in Texas. And that's just the tip of an iceberg. Oh, the anarchy and the the uncertainty, the chronic poverty that plagues so many parts of this world, and the social turmoil and upheaval. Where is the hope? And then we listen to our politicians as we find ourselves, I'll tread carefully here, don't worry. We find ourselves in the midst of an election, and they are spending, and I make no apologies for this word, they are spending an obscene amount of money money to say nothing. Where is the hope? Our hope is found in Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds the church at Rome, with a beautiful, beautiful statement of this hope. He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. What is he referring to? He's reminding him of the fact that things now are not as they will be. That we live in this period in which there is this overlap between the present age and the age to come, but the night is passing, the day is dawning the Christian's hope resides where? In the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ and in a new heavens and in a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our hope. Our forgiveness, our peace, our love, our hope, our rest, meaning, truth, on and on and on it goes. All of these are found in Christ. Again, these precious words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The third truth is this. It comes out of verse 43. Christ alone sends us. So Christ alone saves us. Christ alone satisfies us. And thirdly, Christ alone sends us. Look at what we read in verse 43. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And so imagine the scene. There's the Lord Jesus teaching 5,000 men plus women and children. And the day is drawing to a close. And he realizes these people are hungry. He has compassion upon them. And he commands the disciples to give them something to eat. And the disciples are perplexed. How are they going to feed such a multitude? Well, what do you have? Give me whatever you have. And they produce this meager five loaves and two fish. And these five loaves and two fish in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ are multiplied to such a degree that 5,000 men plus women and children eat and are satisfied. And then afterward, they collect how many baskets full of scraps? Twelve. The number is significant. How many disciples are there? There are 12. What is the Lord Jesus teaching the disciples? Remember the context. Do not lose sight of the context. Earlier in the chapter, he has sent them out to do what? Preach. He has sent them forth to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He has sent them forth to proclaim the gospel, to declare, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They've returned. He's going to send them out again, the great commission that's coming to make disciples of all nations. What is He teaching them here in this incident? He is teaching them that as they go out... And as they experience opposition and as they experience rejection and as they proclaim a message that falls on deaf ears and that for the most part people will not listen to or entertain or even take kindly to, what's he reminding them of? That as you as you go, here's what you've got. You've got five loaves and two fish. You've basically got nothing. In and of yourselves, you do not have the resources. You do not have the ability. You do not have a hope under heaven of feeding anyone. But understand this. Five loaves and two fish in my hands. Oh, the satisfaction that I will bring to men and women. To such a degree that there will be baskets full left over. He is sending them and he is reminding them that as they minister and as they feed men's souls to look to Christ... For the reward. He takes them down that road again. This is recorded in in the Gospel of John. After the resurrection. Chapter 21. The disciples have been out out all night fishing. Without catching anything. And then the Lord Jesus appears on the shore. And he commands them to cast their net on the right hand. and, And they will find a catch. Same men. Same boat. Same sea. Same nets. And yet this time they haul in a countless multitude of fish. What is the difference? It is Christ. Christ alone sends us. I derive such encouragement from that because I'll tell you, I, I get discouraged. I get discouraged when I think of unsaved family members and friends. I get discouraged when it comes to giving counsel or even discipleship. I get discouraged when I look at the meager progress in my own life. I get discouraged when I, when I feel the weight of the calling and of the responsibility. But here the Lord Jesus is exhorting us and encouraging us to do what? Look away from ourselves. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember who we are in Christ. We sow faithfully. We live faithfully. We seek to proclaim faithfully. And we remember that it is Christ who has sent us and it is Christ who will bless us and it is Christ alone who will use our meager efforts, take the little that we have, the nothing that we have, and multiply it to man's good and his glory. Fourth truth is this. Christ alone sustains us. Now there's a second incident in this narrative, isn't there? It's not all about the feeding of the 5,000 on the mountain. There's also the calming of this storm, the wind and the waves. And look at what we read in verse 52 of Mark 6. This is key. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. With that phrase, what is Mark doing? He is linking the two incidents. And he is telling us, he is informing us that we dare not separate these two incidents. That these two incidents, these two demonstrations of miraculous power, they are intended to be understood together. That as the disciples find themselves yet again on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm, and the Lord Jesus calms that storm, yet in the midst of that storm they are overcome with fear and doubt. The reason they are overcome with fear and doubt Remember, this isn't the first storm they've gone through. This is repeated history for them. The reason they are overcome with fear and doubt as they now find themselves in the midst of this storm is why? It is because they have failed to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ revealed through his feeding of the 5,000. And what have they failed to understand in that miracle? Simply this, that Christ is a compassionate sovereign. They have failed to grasp his compassion that when the Lord Jesus sees the multitude, he empathizes with their misery. He is overcome with pity and mercy, and he has compassion toward them. Not merely that, but he is a compassionate sovereign, one who is able to stand and move outside the bounds of natural law and order and multiply five loaves and two fish to feed this multitude. In other words, he is one who reigns supreme over nature, not Not only one who reigns supreme over nature, but one who reigns supreme over every circumstance of life. He is a compassionate sovereign. They have not understood it. And so as they find themselves beaten by the waves yet again, at the mercy of this wind yet again, they succumb to fear and doubt. Why? Because they have not learned what they were supposed to learn. Sound familiar, friend? Oh, I think we have a room full of people who can empathize with the disciples here. We are, by definition, we are uh, slow learners. The disciples' failure to understand means they are susceptible to fear and doubt when they find themselves in the midst of a storm. And I dare submit to you then when we are overcome with fear and doubt in the midst of the storms of life, it is because we have failed to understand what Christ has already so clearly revealed. I said, this isn't the first storm they've been through. Do you remember back in Mark 5, they went through a storm? And at that time, I gave you four truths. I won't ask for a show of hands to see who remembers that, because I'm going to repeat them anyway. Because the same four truths are taught yet again. First is this. Christ leads us into storms. Look at what we read at the outset of verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. That brings a smile to my face. I can almost picture him. Yeah, on you go, into the boat. And then like little children just kind of shuffling over there. Oh boy, what's coming? You mean you're not coming with us? This is going to be a long night. Here we go again. Yeah, in you go into the boat. The Lord Jesus knows what's coming. They have an appointment with another storm. It is orchestrated by by divine sovereignty. He leads us into storms. And all that we pass through in life, the emotional turmoil, physical illnesses, and all the other pressures that come to bear, and the affliction and tribulation, we have this certainty that it is Christ who leads us in. second truth is this. Christ seems indifferent in the midst of storms. Look at verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. What impression is he giving them? Almost almost this, this idea of disinterest. There's Christ. And there he goes, walking right by us. And how often in the midst of storms we feel alone. How often in the midst of storms we feel as though Christ has abandoned us. Understand this, friend. It is the clouds and it is the storm that blind and cloud our perspective. Christ is where he has always been. And Christ is over the storm, under the storm, beside the storm, and in the storm. And it's Christ himself orchestrating these storms for his glory and for our good. The third truth is this. Christ has absolute power over storms. Verse 51, as soon as he enters the boat, the wind ceased. He is able to deliver us from storms if he so chooses. He is most definitely able to sustain us through storms. And the fourth truth is this. Christ is a worthy object of faith in the midst of storms. Verse 50. They all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is the compassionate sovereign. It is the one who has exercised such compassion toward the multitude." One who has manifested his divine power and prerogatives by multiplying five loaves and two fish and satisfying their hunger. It is the one who delivered them previously from the storm. But here are the disciples yet again. The wind is in their faces. The waves are lapping over into the boat. They are overcome with fear and doubt. Why? They did not understand about the loaves. Let me ask you pointedly, friend, do you understand? Do we understand, do we understand who we are in Christ? Christ alone saves us. Christ alone satisfies us. Christ alone sends us. And Christ alone sustains us. Do we understand That's why we need to preach it to ourselves daily. That's why daily we must set our minds on things above, not on things below. That is why daily we must preach to ourselves and meditate upon what it means to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the problem. The moment we take our eyes off of him, we are in trouble. See, Mark doesn't give us the whole story, does he? We have another account of this story. It's in the book of Matthew. Mark leaves something out, and I'm guessing the reason Mark leaves it out is because Mark actually wasn't there for any of this. Mark is the author of this book, but he is writing under the verbal dictation of whom? Peter. I don't think Peter wanted the rest of the story told in this book, but we get the rest of the story in the book of Matthew, don't we? What happens? That as Peter sees the Lord Jesus approaching and the storms all around him, he says, command me to come to you. Here we go. Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the waves. And the moment he takes his eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment he begins to focus on the howling wind and the storm around him and the waves at his feet, that is the moment he begins to sink. But understand two things, Christian. Understand these things well. The first is this. We must call out to Christ whenever we feel we are sinking. And Peter, at that moment, yes, overcome with fear and doubt. Yes, he begins to sinking. Yes, it is his own fault because he's taken his eyes out of Christ, but he calls out for help. Christ's response is wonderful. He doesn't chastise him. Peter, too bad you made your bed, now lie in it. Good luck with that. That's not his response. Peter, pretty noisy out here. I can't hear what you're saying. That's not his response. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him. What does he do? He stretches out his hand and he grabs him. Second thing we must always understand is this, that Christ is closest when he seems farthest. As C.H. Spurgeon comments on this occasion, Peter was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. He sustains us how we must learn from these incidents. These aren't just mere kids' stories. These are revelations of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who he is in his essential self, what he has done for us at Calvary's cross, and what he does now for us, sustaining us and satisfying us and guiding us. But here's the admonition, and we dare not miss it daily. Fix your eyes. On Christ. Pray with me. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for your Son. We are thankful firstly for how you have uh, revealed yourself in Him. Yes, your power and your wisdom and your goodness. We are thankful for how you have rescued us and saved us in Him by His death, by His burial, by His resurrection. We are thankful for how you have made us one with him, whereby his work is applied to us, whereby we know what it is to have peace with you. We know what it is to be filled with joy. We know what it is to enjoy sins forgiven in the hope of eternal life. And We praise you, too, that the Lord Jesus, even now, sustains us and guides us and upholds us. We pray that you would help us daily to rest in him, help us daily to look to him, Give us the strength, give us the wisdom, fill us with your spirit, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.